Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. Brian and I took a much needed break from recording this summer to attend to other things. We're grateful for everyone who continues to support us and want to reassure those of you that were wondering if the podcast had ended, that it indeed has not. We're back with this first episode in a short series on what have come to be known as gladiator fights. These fights are taking place in a number of facilities within the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, also known as CDCR. According to prisoners, prisoners' families, and organizers outside, the fights are set up by prison officials that are forcing known rival groups to share the yard. When prisoners fight, they are punished with a lockdown. In this episode, we talk with Brooke Terpstra, Oaklander Forever, Movement Veteran, and Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee Worker. Brooke is an organizer with the Oakland chapter of IWOC and was a member of the IWOC National Media Committee for the 2018 prison strike. Brooke shares his knowledge of what is happening inside of CDCR with us. We recorded this interview yesterday, August 21st, 2019, on the 48th anniversary of George Jackson's murder. We hope you will stay tuned for this episode. Thank you so much for all you do and for joining us today. Um, we have a lot of ground to cover or that we hope to cover here. Um, but I was wondering if you could just start out by introducing yourself and I walk and some of the work you do for people who may not be familiar. All right. Yeah, my name is Brooke. Um, I organize with the Oakland chapter of Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, uh, IWOC. We're a network that initially formed under the umbrella of the Industrial Workers of the World, uh, Radical Union, with the intent to unionize or support prisoners in a mass and organized fashion. We've matured and developed into being an abolitionist network that does uh, an astounding like variety of support and organizing inside and out. Every region has its own demands and own context. I've been most recently involved uh, in the California situation with orchestrated violence between the prisoner segments and family support. We do a lot of other things, including uh, political education, uh, literature programs, uh, direct jail support for releases out of county jail. And if you're anywhere near or interested in getting involved, just hit up the website and we can probably connect you up with a nearby or the, at least the most nearby chapter that's doing work. Awesome. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about uh, the gladiator fights in California. Like I said, this is a big topic and we're going to come at it from a lot of different angles, but I was wondering if maybe um, from your perspective, if you could sort of set the groundwork for us, lay the foundation of this this story and sort of tell us What's going on in California with incremental releases? Um, and, you know, where is this all coming from? And, you know, what are the gladiator fights? Okay. Before getting into it, I want to just take a moment though, to recognize, I don't know when this will be aired, but today is August 21st. And I'm sitting here in Oakland. August 21st is a sacred day to not only the Black Liberation Movement, but to abolitionists prisoners movement and any revolutionary movement. It's the day George Jackson was assassinated. It's uh, one of the flea days of uh, Black August, which demands extra fasting, observance, study, and training. And many of our 
inside members right now are fasting and outside, uh, training and studying and observance of Black August. Um, and I'm sitting right now like 12 blocks from where his funeral was held and can see San Quentin where he was murdered from my roof. Mm-hmm. So I just basically wanted to give a shout out there. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. yeah. So gladiator fights, there are a couple of big pieces to understanding this. Um, some of that is uh, not complicated, but demands a certain amount of knowledge and attention, which I think explains why coverage of this widespread and really bloody uh, reorganization within CDCR is going kind of uncovered and unnoticed. Um, To begin with, I'll give you a cursory explanation. Um, CDCR is orchestrating violence between different segments of the prisoner population. This will come as no surprise to anyone that's done time anywhere in this country. This is standard play out of the playbook in terms of prison management control and dehumanization. Anyone who's done time can can cite instances where the administration uh, or even headquarters like in the state capitals or feds down to guards has set up one prisoner against another, one group against another in order to maintain control and also kind of Uh, give themselves more power, the ability to exact summary punishment. Even there's testimony from many quarters of guards essentially executing people off the books, of walking people in and setting them up to be killed. Mm -hmm. This uh, in California, uh, well, at least gladiator matches is both appropriate and also a misnomer. Gladiator matches have a certain cachet here in California, a certain recognizability because there was a large scandal in the mid-90s where at Corcoran, a very large maximum security prison that was built uh, in the prison building boom in our Central Valley. It opened in 88. It's uh, 640 acres. And its history is detailed pretty extensively in Ruth Wilson Gilmore's book, The Golden Gulag, for folks who want to read more on it. But it's essentially a flagship prison, uh, hardcore, uh, high security, also with an incredibly uh, violent and cloistered jock uh, guard culture that's both uh, licensed and encouraged by administration all the way up to the line to Sacramento, where it headquarters. In in the scandal in, like, from 92 to 96, uh, the investigation broke in 94. Several guards came forward um, about staged fights between inmates in solitary confinement, or what's called the SHU, secure housing unit, which is long-term <clears throat> solitary confinement. They would be set up essentially in what looked like a, a quarter the size of a basketball court, 12-foot-high concrete walls with a walker on the top. That was their exercise yard. They'd be essentially released uh, two-on-two, one-on-one, three-on-three from rival factions, hostile factions that were known to not program together and had a state of war uh, between them. Either they had that uh, due to their own conflicts or it was um, stoked either by a whisper campaigns or setups <clears throat> or preferential treatment by the guards. They would set them up in this exercise yard and they would fight. Guards would essentially take bets and 
you know, laugh and set it up on a regular basis, um, both as a form of punishment, a summary execution, uh, anyone basically that uh, mouthed off would like not only get thrown into solitary, but could end up dead. <clears throat> Six people died due to um, shootings from the walkway. Now, <clears throat> what's going on now is worse. It's not a runaway guard culture. It's not a lapse in policy. It is policy. There's a section of prisons in California across the Central Valley, uh, in the central portion of it, uh, namely Corcoran, uh, CTF, which is Soledad, uh, Correctional Training Facility, Soledad, Pleasant Valley, uh, Avenal, and to a lesser degree, uh, Jamestown, which is a, a fire camp training center, but still houses like 4,000 people and is a lower security. Now, beginning in October, there's been a campaign of uh, weaponizing an outlier prisoner population and group called the Bulldogs, which are, are non-signatories to uh, peace agreements between the different factions within California. Um, there are about 500 of them statewide, and they are basically placed and housed in these five institutions for the most part, some elsewhere, but they're being weaponized by CDCR in order to destabilize yards, to um, exist as a tool uh, available to put more points on people, to boost their security status, to get people hurt, also to essentially levy an ultimatum on other prisoner groupings. Uh, essentially, like, you basically buckle down and, like, uh, dissolve, or else we're going to lock you down and fight you like dogs. When it comes to CTF, I have here in front of me a timeline of uh, over two dozen incidents, basically, since uh, October you know, that we've been able to confirm. Mm -hmm. There are other incidents we haven't been able to confirm, but we vet information and seek, of, you know, confirmation of sources. And, you know, you guys are journalists, you know about, about that. But there have been two dozen just at CTF. If we added Corcoran and the others, uh, you could easily double that number. So this has been a campaign stretching out almost, you know, for a year. So like a couple of the big pieces. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to ask you, um, you know, Maybe I should let you keep going, but I wanted you to to talk a little bit more about the peace agreement that you were you were mentioning, uh, and how this is targeting that peace agreement to stifle organizing on the inside. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Feel free to interject anytime with the question. Um, it'll help, you know keep keep it moving because I could just go on and on. Uh, <laughs> but it also it's 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 difficult. To, to know exactly how to structure uh, the conversation on this. Half of the country uh, is either had family inside or has family inside now or has done time. The other half doesn't know shit, you know, mm -hmm. for various reasons. So uh, Beyond Prisons, I think, kind of straddles that line. You know, mm -hmm. even folks that are amenable or sympathetic or even abolitionists don't really know how prison yards are organized or right. function. Mm -hmm. They're yep. mini societies with their own rules and codes and histories and um, or even how prisons are run in that mm -hmm. prisons are run always everywhere like, with no exception. Uh, they're, they're basically run in a state of tension between inmate control and administration control. And there's always a state of agreement or collaboration or uh, a certain detente be between those. There's a tension and a tug of war. Even prison administrations even rely on uh, prisoner organization and agreements 
to set a certain stability or negotiating partner in some instances. Mm-hmm. So in, in light of that, I think you can't really understand this at all. Like, why would, why would CDCR break the peace and basically risk death and injury and throwing more people into solitary mm-hmm. and an intense level of strife and stress and trauma? Um, just not only inside, but outside. Um, every Tuesday would roll around at some of these facilities, and that would be the day they would schedule these fights, which were uh, euphemistically, you know, called in that bureaucratic, sick language, uh, incremental releases, you know, of handpicked people to go out and fight. But uh, why would they do that? Um, I think it only makes sense with this one big piece, and that's to understand the agreement to end hostilities. Now, this was issued in 2012 and was a result of a certain short quarter collective, what they call themselves, in the Pelican Bay Shoe, in solitary in the far north of the state. Now, solitary was the whole card for CDCR in terms of controlling people and levying punishment, essentially a dungeon in which you could be thrown into to disappear forever, indefinite solitary, uh, 23-7, you know, lockdown, one hour a day, possibly out in the yard, sometimes not, uh, no light, no outside contact, lights, complete regimentation, uh, sensory, uh, you know, problems, psychosis, the works, um, except they made the mistake of housing, uh, you know, rival factions next to each other in a pod, you know, the certain pod called the short corridor. Now, they typically do that to levy punishment on people, basically off the books punishment. Basically, you, you set up a white supremacist next to a black nationalist, hoping that that'll be an extra level of friction and hardship and trauma upon them both. Except that with years and decades to spend in a dungeon, these people started communicating. And it's on the strength of that communication and the coming to a certain agreements and realizing they had a common enemy, uh, that the system itself, they started organizing. And realized that it was in all their benefits to essentially uh, not call a, a priest treaty, but like a ceasefire, an agreement to end hostilities. And that was issued after the first hunger strikes against solitary confinement, and which happened in 2011. There was a lawsuit that had already started in 2009 uh, against indefinite solitary. Then uh, there was a, a wave of hunger strikes in Pelican Bay in 2011. Then between that wave and the next wave that was really to hit large in 2013, this agreement came out. And it essentially, uh, I could read it off. Um, if we really want to bring about substantive, meaningful changes to the CDCR system in a manner beneficial to all solid individuals who have never been broken by CDCR's torture tactics, intended to coerce one to become a state informant by a debriefing. Now, debriefing is basically turning snitch, and that's the only way you could get out of indefinite solitary to continue. That now is the time for us to collectively see this moment in time and put an end to more than 20 to 30 years of hostilities between our racial groups. Two. Therefore, beginning on October 10th, 2012, all hostilities between our racial groups in SHU, ADSEG, which is solitary, general population, and county jails will officially cease. This means that from this date on, all racial group hostilities need to be at an end. And if personal issues arise between individuals, people need to do all they can to exhaust all diplomatic means to settle such disputes. Do not allow personal individual issues to escalate into racial group issues. So essentially, these uh, heads, uh, these folks with a lot of rank within inside formations, 
um, negotiated amongst themselves to end racial hostilities. And from the 80s, even in 90s, up to like 2010, uh, old timers can tell you and guards were more willing to tell you the stories. It was a state of all out war. Um, people have a hard time even totaling the number of bodies, you know, the number of people that died. So essentially what exists now is a state of not total peace, but the agreement to end hostilities is the norm <clears throat> that gets broken rather than a state of war, which gets broken with people doing side agreements. It's mm -hmm. the standard. By all reports, uh, yard violence and lateral violence inside you know, the prisons between prisoners has been more than been halved. You know, it's about 30, 40% of what it was. Mm -hmm. So in this context, which was uh, brought about um, by prisoners themselves, there was a, a settlement on this uh, class action lawsuit against indefinite solitary that essentially took away a huge chunk of CDCR's uh, quiver, their tools at hand, uh, the tactics they could employ to basically break, you know, prisoner organizations or uh, put them away in a dungeon forever. It uh, put an end to indefinite solitary on paper, at least. So immediately after that settlement in August 2015, immediately what was summoned uh, were re-strategizing sessions within CDCR on how to push back. One of these um, was a plan that was hatched at a, what's called an SNY summit, which is a sensitive needs yard summit, which is a protective custody yard, which grew quite large during this era. Um, they're, uh, now they're essentially trying to do away with uh, separated yards and are mixing them together um, non-voluntarily. Involuntarily, people are being forced to program together. Um, in parallel with this, this uh, war on inside formations using gladiator fights was also concocted. Mm -hmm. And the, this one faction called the Bulldogs that is a, been weaponized by CDCR in order to attack other segments is a non-signatory. They're a dropout group. Right. They're basically people that dropped out of structures, uh, formed these formations in these other uh, ragtag yards, and essentially have built their own power and status by being spoilers, essentially uh, being ones to break agreements, being the ones to do whatever the fuck they want, or actually, you know, putting in work for CDCR. You know, they're, they're not viewed as part of the solid GP population. They're outliers. Mm -hmm. So essentially CDCR at this point is weaponizing outliers in order to exact summary you know, punishment and um, destabilize yards and, you know, basically take back that power that was a, uh, basically rested from them with mass hunger strikes, lawsuits, and political action. Thank you for that. Yeah. That was a really good summary. Kim, did you have a question? Um, I was content listening to everything that you were saying um, because it's, you know, pretty thorough uh, and um, covers a lot of the history and lays the groundwork for um what's been going on today in a way that, you know, hasn't really been, uh, we haven't been able to get people to take notice of, um, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, to, um, kind of, uh, go back a little bit here. Um, you talked about the hunger strikes, um, and I'd like to, have you go back and talk a little bit more about that because I think that those um, are important uh, turning points 
Um, at least they were in my thinking, uh, and I could be wrong about this. So I, I don't know if you could shed some light on that. Um, on, on what respect, really? Like um... in terms of how they relate to what's going on now with the with the fights. Yeah. Well, within CDCR and and all systems, but I know California's uh, best. Um, Racial divisions are both uh, created um, as well as exacerbated and orchestrated by uh, officials and guards mm -hmm. in order to maintain control. The racial housing within California was, uh, it, it, they weren't responding to uh, demand for it, you know, due to problems at the yard level, they instituted it. Mm -hmm. It took a lawsuit. It took another class action lawsuit called Mitchell v. Kate, which was brought in uh, 2011, uh, to do away with uh, race-based punishment and race-based lockdown. There actually used to be an app on your phone for visitation uh, back then when you'd get an alert if visitation for your facility, like, you know, say it was Calipatria, you know, you'd get an alert uh, if visitation was up and running for that weekend or you get an alert saying uh, no visitation for blacks or no visitation available for Mexicans. Oh, wow. You know, was, yeah, because they're explicitly racially grouped. Now, CDCR <laughs> says it never housed people like, but no, like even in their own paperwork, on their own apps, on their own visitation forms, on their own classifications. And you know how systems love to classify prisoners. It's voluminous. It's a huge chunk mm. of your central file that they hold is your classification status. And it was racialized and they, they created it and they furthered it. And um, they're, they're, we could talk a little bit about the ways, like how they basically exact punishment upon people and stir up people against each other uh, and exact, uh, there are a bunch of little techniques, you know, and it's all off the books. You know, some of it makes it onto the books and into paperwork, but there are a thousand little ways they can, they can fuck you up. Whether it's just, uh, we have a documented uh, case here at CTF too. Like it's an age old pattern. You know, within the same housing unit, they'll unlock one door, you know, uh, then they'll unlock four doors with a rival and then basically go back to the bubble. Mm -hmm. And basically then you get jumped in your cell and you get your ass kicked, if not killed. And that, that happens. And it happens repeatedly. It happens in that small quotidian way. It happens in the large way, like when it institutionally, when everybody gets locked down according to a racial designation. Yeah. Now, the the perversity here, <laughs> you know, is off the charts because in this moment they're using Mitchell v. Kate as a citation to justify these yard integrations, is what they're calling. They're not mm -hmm. calling them gladiator fights. They're calling incremental releases, mm -hmm. you know, which is a really like that horrible bureaucratic language for a staged fight. Uh, and an integrated in policy, which is basically, you know, establishing warfare on the yard in order to maintain their own control. A divided mm -hmm. prisoner population is incapable of challenging the administration. Mm -hmm. A unified and peaceful prisoner population is very hard to turn snitch. Yep. And, you know, Mariana Cava said it like on your show, like, or I think she said it on Twitter. Um, he said, essentially this prison system, you know, from top to bottom, from the first contact on the street to uh, being tried in the court to doing time to reentry is all about the administration of pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a criminal punishment system. 
You know, we should get that word justice out of our mouths. Yep. And she's completely right. And these institutions are incapable of doing anything except applying the same tool over and over again and escalating. They never give up power and they're never going to recognize prisoners' humanity. It's mm -hmm. up to prisoners themselves to take it and like an outside movement to help. Yep. Which is the, which is what happened with the prisoner hunger strike. It took them to basically turn back this barbaric practice, you know, at least to open up the fight. So indefinite solitary is still in effect in California, by the way. Mm -hmm. They just named it differently, you know. Yeah. It's just rolling ad seg sentences. They put you in short-term solitary and just, like, revalidate you every 90 days. Yeah, modified they call program, it. right, as they yeah. call it. Is it. Like, the words for solitary are just, you'll see M-U, I-R-U, T-H-U, S-H-U, S-I-D, yeah. They all mm -hmm. just name them different little programs or even EOP. You know, which is supposedly a psychiatric program, but it, it puts you under increased surveillance, isolation, because they can just use psychological care as a weapon and dope you up and then throw you in the hole. Mm -hmm. um, so it took prisoners themselves in an outside movement. It took a, like people on the legal front. It took prisoners wholesale across all these factions that had previously been at war to, to have to basically deal with the racial violence. And it took an outside movement, you know, to basically force this uh, message into the media. And it took years, you know. And I think to get back to our gladiator fight situation, I think this kind of explains some of the difficulties we have getting it into the mass media beyond, you know, the whole problem with a corporate, you know, propaganda machine basically fronting as a media. Most media are essentially real estate corporations or investment vehicles, mislabeled newspapers. Um, but back then with solitary, it took years and it took an inside outside movement and it took collaboration between the segments to basically push this thing and, and make it stick. Mm -hmm. It was just the collaboration between the different factions and groups persuaded a lot of people on the outside, like, damn, this is for real. I didn't know much about this before, but now this is like showing us the way. Like, and it's, they set the bar high, like on the outside, where has that level of collaboration and agreement and like desegregation of the left or anything else happened? You know, it's, it's the, the prisoner population in many instances is more unified, savvy and strategic than the, the outside. And they're still yeah. leading on this, right? Absolutely. I mean, you talk about the, the hunger strike in January, um, you know, and, and sort of like the attempt to negotiate with the prison, um, around the basic rights for, you know, one of the things that I wanted you to, to talk about was uh, with regards to these lockdowns or as CDCR calls them, the modified program, you know, what is mm. the effect on that? And if you could talk about the January hunger strike a little bit, you know, I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. In Corcoran 3C, which uh, is the old portion of Corcoran that opened up in 88, there have been uh, portions added on over the years. So it's a sprawling complex. Corcoran 3C houses general population prisoners, including um, 275 Southerners from the, you know, I'll use words that they use to self-identify. They identify as Southern Mexicans. You know, I mean, the system identifies them as Hispanic. So we know, we're not going to get even into all the Chicano or Latinx uh, debate. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll just use how people uh, self-identify, mm -hmm. you know. And um, so the, They've been locked down after the, they were attacked on the yard 
by Bulldogs on September 28th. And that sent a shockwave across the Central Valley to all other facilities because Soledad Level 4, which is the highest of security levels, and Corcoran 3C um, is, is like a flagship like place. It's like a lot of heavy hitters go there. And what happens at Corcoran and Soledad kind of sets the tone for a lot of other facilities, you know. And they're, they're, they're similar in size often, but, but the way these places are run uh, kind of sets the bar for a lot of Central Valley prisons. But they were jumped by Bulldogs on yeah, September 28th, then a full lockdown went into effect. And that lockdown persisted. It's only been lifted like a couple months ago. It went for eight and a half months, you know, which isn't the longest lockdown by any means that happens in California. I mean, there are documented lockdowns that have lasted longer than like a thousand days, like almost three years. And, and can they, you explain? Um, can you explain to folks what a lockdown is? Because I don't think that yeah. people really understand what really happens under a lockdown. Like mm -hmm. you're losing like everything. There's nothing yeah. happening. No visits. No nothing. But I'll let you explain that. Yeah. Um, if we if we had visuals, a little PowerPoint, I'd pull up what's called the PSR, which is like a programming status report. Not because they're fascinating documents, because it has all the check boxes and little categories of like what is allowed and what isn't for a certain housing unit or even a certain person. Yeah. Now they're like, and they call it modified program in California. There, there is technically a lockdown within California, but that's when every single thing is denied. And politically, they basically have orders not to do that because that triggers like one, uh, they want to just avoid it rhetorically because wardens are you know, administrators are very political animals. They, mm -hmm. they shy away from using uh, truthful language at every step. Hence, like, incremental release, modified program, you know, uh, <laughs> secure housing. No, it's torture, it's violence. And, like, yeah, they, they, they call it modified program because they stop just short of taking everything. Mm -hmm. But it, this lockdown for them is what it meant um, – by every door in one of these housing units, there are five buildings. They essentially held 200 each, like 50 uh, double cells on top, 50 double cells on bottom, uh, two stories. And next to every door, there's like a coded placard with your name, your PFN, which is your, like your prisoner file number, which you carry for life. Um, and like a color coded uh, little uh, section, which tells you like what status you're on or what your affiliation is. And according to these is like how you get the program. Everybody on in these five buildings was on sometimes been on partial, but sometimes on full like lockdown without the name. But the Southerners, um, which are the target of uh, this campaign, particularly because they're essentially the largest and most together and unified of the inside segments. You know, the state calls them gangs. But it's a lot more complicated than that, and I refuse to use that word. Um, they self-refer to themselves as population segments, so that's what I'm going to use. But their population segment is the largest and uh, basically has the most juice on the yard and most members. All of them went on hunger strike after months and months of unfair treatment. Essentially, the lockdown took away all yard time, all visitation, 
it took uh, you don't get any uh, what's called ducats or hall passes to go to library or medical except by special appointment. All movements outside the cell are in full shackles. Um, no phone time, no phone calls allowed. Uh, your mail can still flow, but a lot of cases the mail got slowed down, which includes uh, the care packages of food and other stuff that people put together of sanctioned items you can send in, like up to a certain, uh, you know, you can basically send a couple pounds of stuff in. They stopped those. And against key people, they also stopped mail illegally. Uh, shower time was really restricted. You would only be escorted to shower maybe once every two weeks, possibly. Wow. Um, basically, everything was denied. Um, hmm. And you couldn't even spend your own money on your account on commissary. Right. You could only spend it on hygiene. Mm -hmm. And this is also a tool against uh, hunger strikes, which are often take the form of just food strikes. We're just going to refuse state trays and eat at a commissary, which is like uh, a, a form of civil disobedience and like unity. Uh, state doesn't even like that. Um, so Southsiders said, you know, like, screw all this. We're being labeled the aggressors in these incremental releases, even though we're walking under the yard with our hands down and up through the first punch. They're, they're labeled and written up for mutual combat, which is a major violation in the system, which is different than being a victim of a t an attack. Mm -hmm. um, they were being singled out, and it's true they were being singled out. And why they were being singled out was a very political and savvy move by CDCR. They're trying to break like the largest uh, faction that's still functioning with, within their you know, higher security prisons. And I just wanted to point out really quickly, the commissary one, is especially insidious. I mean, they're all, you know, awful for their own reasons. But, you know, in the few conversations that I was able to have with prisoners, uh, and, uh, you know, especially with people like the family members and supporters on the outside, the issue of hunger kept coming up. And I'm not talking about people who are on hunger strike. I mean, people who lost like a major source of their nutrition and food. Um, and CDC yeah. are using that against them. So go ahead. You have you have to supplement. I mean, so, I mean, that, that kind of segues aptly into some of the criticisms or lack of sympathy for what's going on with these incremental releases. Some of the criticisms by trolls, albeit, uh, was like, why don't they just not fight? Why don't they just get mm -hmm. along? Um, <laughs> which is like completely ignorant of mm -hmm. what is set up inside, um, yeah. completely ignorant of the primary predator in effect, which is the state itself uh, inflicting violence and stoking the situation. And also completely ignorant of how prisoners um, need to be given room and ample opportunity to negotiate amongst themselves. Because mm -hmm. that's the only way really, you know, anything really gets dealt with on the yard. But essentially, it's like in certain areas, like, yeah, administration calls the shots. But like on the yard, it's, it's up to that small society that forms that little unit of 1,000 or 3,000 within the facility that basically have a certain code and come to agreements with themselves. Mm -hmm. But... Why don't they just not fight? <clears throat> well, actually, a lot of Southerners didn't. They took the, uh, they didn't, they didn't go, what's called go off on somebody. They didn't go at somebody. Uh, they basically told the administration, like, look, we're going to enter the yard with our, hearts down, with our hands down, and, like, hopefully it wouldn't get written up as mutual combat. But, of course, they didn't. They still remained locked down. Because the administration is collaborating with this rival faction, with the, this weaponized faction. They would actually have meetings with the Bulldogs and set out the terms and uh, negotiate uh, like benefits if they would do a certain thing. 
they would not search bulldogs and they let them under the yard. This is why a lot of weapons, you know, when you're being led out of your cell, only like two or four at a time with no search to be led into a yard for a known fight, there are no searches happening. So they essentially set up, you know, they put weapons in people's hands. But the, like, why don't they just get along? Well, <clears throat> at every turn, CDCR uh, inculcates violence. And um, I think maybe in the, on the website, maybe you can link to this article that was written by someone inside California called Mutope Duguma in June 2018 called Nothing New. He basically lays out how exactly CDCR has sown this history and created, you know, this violence. Everything from that kind of off the books kind of situations that they use. But overall, structurally, the main thing that uh, creates violence is an enforced scarcity. You know, basically everything you need for a human life is taken from you. And that's seen, you know, that's normalized as the mission of a prison. It's right. nibbled around the edges by liberals and progressives saying, like, you should only take away half of their humanity, like, not all of it. Right. Um, but everything, like your movement, um, sunlight, um, food, um, pencils, Human touch. communication, family, Human touch. touch. Yeah, yeah, touch. You know, yeah. even, even the freedom to braid each other's hair is regulated mm -hmm. on the yard. If you, mm -hmm. if like more than three people like got up in a yard, you know, number four could get a, like a cork bullet in the head from the, from the tower, you know, yeah. um, water, um, everything, how you can take a shit, whether or not you can put a sheet up over the bathroom, what book you can read. Yep. And when you basically take everything away, uh, prisoners organize, they self-organize in order to secure for themselves everything that they might need, you know. Yeah. Basically all inside, you know, prisoner organizing or even like so-called you know, gang organization is uh, basically about securing basic necessities, you know. So when you basically mm -hmm. take that away, yeah. you, know, you create competition and then people fight each other for scraps. And like, what does that sound like? That sounds like the outside world. That sounds like capitalism, mm -hmm. you know, Absolutely. so there's a continuum. The inside is just, you know, employing in a very kind of unvarnished, you know, form exactly what's done on the outside. You know, it's the outside might rely on the market. Yeah, it's a microcosm. It's a, so it's, it's an microcosm of everything that's going on out here. Um, when you were talking about, um, you know, uh, being able to go to the bathroom, uh, and yeah. you know, we all want we all want some privacy during that time. And uh, you know, my son called me this morning and uh, basically said that, you know. I mean, it's it's a practice that, you know, people just put up a sheet and that signals that, you know, they're using the bathroom. So, right. you know, give them a few minutes and uh, CEO, yeah. you know, CEO walked in and was just like, oh, well, you can't have the sheet up. And he's like, yo, for real, like I'm going to the bathroom here. Um, and then a maintenance worker walked in on him as well. And it was just like, you know, like all he was trying to do was go to the bathroom. And it's like, right. you know, uh, it, it's mm -hmm. just these kind of, you know, they're not even petty. The, the, these kinds of, Jesus. Um, it's designed. Yeah, petty is just like, it's too emotionalizing. This is yeah, a designed it, thing. It, it's it's minimizing the, the weight of what's going on because when you're experiencing these things hundreds of times a day in every single way, it doesn't matter what it is that you're doing or not doing. 
that they're going to attack you um, or they're going to write you up for anything, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think that um, the, the demands that um, prisoners uh, issued, you know, and, and have been asking for, um, you know, really illustrate just how important these things are. And, you know, just all they, they want visitation reinstated, right. Um, Mm -hmm. Their education and rehab um, programs back. They wanted access to the commissary, um, the ability to receive packages and 10 hours of outdoor activity a week, like 10 hours a week is nothing, is nothing. Um, And to be treated fairly. And I, you know, for me, I mean, reading those things and as someone who goes into, you know, prison every single week, you know, um, pretty much without fail, unless I'm absolutely sick, um, you know, that just really resonated. But again, talking to a lot of um, other folks and we did get, um, I know Brian's gotten a lot of um, uh feedback from families or uh, folks have reached out to him. I had a few people reach out to me um, as well after the, the piece aired on uh, watching the Hawks um, about these, uh, these fights. And I'm not going to share right now because I don't have their permission to share uh, those things publicly. And um, at least one of the folks who reached out um, will come on and talk about their uh what happened to their loved one on the inside but i tell you i basically had to sit back for a couple of days and just it before i could even respond because i i really had no words like and i've you think you've heard it all you you really haven't heard it all like you Mm -hmm. just you say that and then someone says something to you or describes what their loved one has um, has experienced on the inside and you're like, Jesus, what the fuck are we doing? Um, yeah. so I had a question in there. I think I lost the question. Oh, it had to do with the, the, um, the six demands and, you know, uh, just wanting to get your thoughts on, on those things. And, um, yeah. Yeah. The, um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I just have to take a moment. Yeah. I just want to say, like, while you're while you're taking a moment, like I so I, you know, I've been writing about prisons for several years now. I've covered a lot of horrendous, just gut wrenching stories. I have never had a story where I've written something and got so many desperate pleas from family members on my phone, in my inbox. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was astounding. Like, you know, sometimes you write something about something that's happening to like a large group of prisoners and you'll get like a few messages here and there, people thanking you or at, you know, sharing their story. This was not even close to that. This was dozens of people reaching out to me, you know, begging for help, saying how long this has Mm -hmm. been going on. And yeah, I mean, I just, I had to step away from, so yeah i just wanted and to no yeah, listening. like no one is listening to their stories or taking it seriously or willing to you know report on it and yeah. that is you know it's like talk about disappearing people and erasing them you know it's like mm-hmm. and and 
what are families supposed to do? You know, uh, it, it just yeah. it leaves them in a state of, you know, frustration and despair, but also a lot of people, um, or at least the, the people that have reached out to me um, have organized, you know, and have mm -hmm. said, well, we can't, we simply can't just sit here and, you know, do nothing and hope and pray that things are going to change. Like we need to actually, you know, act on these things in ways that are going to force um, a kind of change. And part of that has been, you know, raising awareness um, about what's going on on the inside. Um, yeah. But you wanted to and say something? Yeah, I mean, leave all this, leave all this in the podcast, please. Cause I mean, people need to know mm -hmm. it's about trauma and I don't know. I mean, I can explain all this like I have like politically, you know, and the political economy of it and the, basically the big politics of it, but, um, it's torture mm -hmm. and, and to do the work on the outside is basically to daily acquaint yourself with like another story, especially like families also band together in an amazing way to support each other. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. even across affiliations on the outside, it's really common. To, like, you know, like all that politics on the inside, like, no, like if you go on all the groups that like call themselves prison wives, cause it's often the women, you know, doing all the support yep. work. I don't see many, I don't see many brothers or fathers out there, mm -hmm. you know, cause also like, like odds are like they went through the system too and are like dealing with the deep wound. Mm-hmm. But um yeah. Yeah. I mean yesterday I got a letter that was written for somebody in someone's kind of jerky hand because his is so fucked up and been beaten up. He can't even write letters anymore. And he was essentially just begging for a typewriter. So he could pursue his legal case. Or someone sends you a letter about like how they have to put their mattress on the floor so they can get cool air at night. Right. Yep. Yep. That's and you know, how do you deal with that? I mean a shit ton and and, and when you do the media work, like, I have to revert into just a, like, cold poker playing and, like, figuring out how to hook these bastards into saying something. Totally. You know, and, and when it has all the ingredients and it still doesn't get covered, um, it has blood. It has a hidden story. We have a pipeline straight into people with prisoner testimony. You realize there are massive obstacles to them, like, even writing something. It's not a fluke. We could put out thousands of press releases, you know. It's been on these TV shows. It the the video that we released went viral, you know. Um, I've done these remedial sessions with these with some of these sources, you know, these big national platforms, and nothing gets written. It's yeah. like too many things get challenged by this for it to be written, you know. Basically, the way that we said it was a microcosm. We 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 straight run into the dehumanization like the mandate of the prisons, you know, there, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not an accident. It's easier for people to digest the story about a guard culture run amok because it's kind of lurid. It's like yeah. a law and order episode. Right. It doesn't condemn mm -hmm. everything. 
And it seems and the like realities of the situation on how you can, it's and it's so much worse that it's a matter of policy. Right. Wardens have told us in meetings, like told the inmate family councils, which are like these state-sponsored like bullshit shows where they maintain communication with a council of family members to like supposedly receive input, but it's basically a propaganda channel. They've admitted in these meetings that the orders are coming from Sacramento. You know, even like one one said, I don't want to be doing this because it's like making my facility a fucking war zone, but I have to do it. And then they trot out these the, the law, like I have to do it because of Mitchell v. Kate, because that's what the legal department of CDCR is giving them is like armor as like the propaganda weapon to basically explain like we're making them get along just like they would have to in the real world. They will have to integrate this paternalistic, complete fucking garbage, you know, that that would be like absurd and like maniacally funny if it weren't just so bloody and like pointless and you realize they're getting away with it. Right. You know? Yeah. I'll add to, you know, sort of taking this back around to to where we started on this aspect of the conversation. It's not, you know, the outcome of this is not even just taking away life necessities and, you know, enacting physical violence on people, you know, both from the families and from the prisoners, there's a lot like, I, you know, I hear a lot about fear and anxiety. It's the things, it's the Mm. moments like in between two that I think are just as important to talk about. And you know, that the psychological toll that the impact that has both on people on the inside and the outside, I didn't know Brooke, if you wanted to talk a little bit, you know, about the sort of the emotional psychological toll of living under these conditions where like you might be called out on the yard. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them won't admit it because um, they don't want their family to worry. Um, And they also want their family to step up in many cases. So they, they, they want them to be unafraid on the outside. So, so oftentimes they don't admit to like the crises and, like what's going down, but every once in a while you, you hear about it, you know, or someone will just go silent for a long time or you'll or get a letter uh, talking about PTSD or um, you'll find out someone went to the psych unit or, um, or straight up off themselves. They, they fucking took themselves out. Um, but the, the waiting, like the lockdown is one thing and, when you have visitation, at least you can check in. Like, you're both doing time in a certain sense. Like, yeah, you're on the outside. Um, and some relationships will endure, especially family. But a lot of marriages, you know, break up. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the visitation, at least you can, like, stay grounded somewhat. Um, but the the lockdown and the way things can just go off at any time, and especially to the, the family that pays attention and you know, and especially for like the non-white prisoners that are affiliated, because basically you, you you gotta affiliate if you just want to watch your back and get anything for yourself, time in the day room, anything else. You you basically gotta like crew up with somebody. So like, but that also puts you at risk from CDCR. It's and you're dealing with an implacable like opaque black box, you know, that just renders judgment upon you and is completely arbitrary. I mean, you were talking about the shit sheet and your, what your son had to go through. Here you yeah. can get written up because that, that string that you weave yourself, you can pull apart, you know, a piece of your clothing and pull that thread out of the bottom of your T-shirt 
and if you unwind about three or four inches, you wrap it around a post of your bunk, and you spin and you weave it up, and you can create like a little string to hold it up. That string is contraband, and you can get written up for it. Yeah. And you can so many write-ups, yeah. you can add a point. You add points, you add yep. time. You know. Yep. Just for all yeah. that little no, shit. I mean, it, he's he didn't get written up this time, but yeah, it's like I I know yeah, other people that have been written up for those same things. Yeah, it's under that guard's discretion, so it's like you're completely mm-hmm. at the whim of incredibly <laughs> brutal, stupid fucking machine operators for the system. Yep. Guards are fucking goons. Like, come at me, like sue me for slander. You are fucking goons. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and if you're one of those suffering like social worker types that thinks you're going to do good as a guard. Yeah, you, you've probably been there for like three months. You need to quit or else you need to turn snitch and fucking out like everything is going on. Be a pipeline of information because you are fucking goons. But like mm-hmm. the system manufactures people for that job. It right. incubates Absolutely. them and trains them and grooms them. And, you know, so many guys from the military or want to be cops or from these Basically, a lot of prisons here in California are, are white, you know, job programs, you know, basically depressed rural areas that now either manufacture chemicals, meth, cotton, or almonds, you know, by corporations, you know, and it's still I mean, a I, shitty job. You yeah. know, even the trauma for guards, the, the suicide and domestic violence rate for these, for these guards is like through the roof. Right. Like the trauma even affects the, the, the most suited and voluntarily involved, like among them. Yeah, you know? of course. That was so exactly the, the what I was, woman, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Well, and I want to talk a little bit too about trauma on the outside in terms of the families where they band together. Please do. Um, it's well, one, it's like they're, they're setting the example, you know, it's like if some people are abolitionists, like, you know, by choice or it seems to fit or, or it's a way, you know, let's, let's face it some leftists and political types like enact a hero, you know, narrative about themselves. Mm-hmm. But there are other people that are in it for survival. And it's like, it, you basically can't escape it. There's no, there's no in or out. Like, you're in it. Um, and those mm-hmm. of us that have had family inside, like, prison's with you forever. It's just waiting there, you know. Because it's really like, my, my little nephew, like, it's like, my biggest worry. He's out right now. But he could go just right back in because the outside's a fucking jackpot. Because like a yep. like a fucking young Mexican kid with like fucking no education is just a target, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's the enemy for white America. So, the I mean, in in IWOC, we're kind of a mix of people that have been locked up and a lot of inside members and people that had family inside. But we're still like majority activists. But uh, we've like a lot of the work on the outside. We've come to realize it's just like how not to burn out because it's one thing to be a pen pal with one person it's another to correspond with dozens mm-hmm. you know yep. um, you cast them that wide and you know it's the same story all over but the stories like all the different details um we have nights where we just uh it's called a correspondence night we get together and talk shop and um you know see what's going on inside share like you know what's going on with the different people we're talking to inside but we also just talk through a lot of the hardship and, you know, form kind of a pale, kind of a lesser version of what the families do for each other in terms of emotionally being there for each other, but also just like talking things through, you know, 
and I think just getting things articulated and uh, sharing notes instead of suffering inside or thinking that you should handle it individually um, is really analogous to what everyone should be doing and what prisoners are doing, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of collectivizing and organizing. Because that single prisoner, like, just filing grievances all the time, just like me against the system, like, very few people survive that impact, you know. They get, they get ground up and spit out. Right. And the same goes for the outside, you know. Um, so I like, that's why I really appreciated IWOC being a kind of collective and mass effort. Uh, the individual stuff, like, well, one gets nowhere because you never really develop a strategy or any capacity to do anything. Um, the small letter writing groups really got to step it up and to, you know, start doing organizing. But also just in terms of, you know, taking care of each other, it's a real lesson. Absolutely. Yeah. That's something Brian and I talk a lot about. Um, and, uh, you know, again, having two sons, uh, currently sentenced to LWAP, um, and, you know, one of them with, um, who's mentally ill and, uh, you know, it's like it just the levels of bullshit that we have to encounter that we deal with on a daily basis, like, it's a rare occasion that I turn off like the ringer on my phone because mm -hmm. when that phone rings, like I'll rush over to get it. I don't care what I'm doing. Um, I don't care if I'm, you know, in a faculty meeting, I don't care. If, like, it yeah. doesn't matter. Like none of those Fucking things. Fire me. Yeah. Difference. Fire me, man. You know, like... <laughs> because, exactly. Because I don't know what they're going to say on the other end because right. every single day is about keeping you you know in this state of you know uncertainty um of feeling like the rug could be pulled out from under you at any moment and it can be because you know like over the summer um and I won't go too deep into this because I know we're we're up on time here but you know my my son Paul had been written up um, several times on bullshit, right? And it's because he had just come out of the shoe after being in the shoe for about 18 months, right? And um, and I said, okay, you know, the one thing that we all know is that, you know, you're only out on a compound temporarily, that everybody ends up going back to the shoe at some point. It just, mm -hmm. it's just a matter of when and for how long, right? Um, so, you know, right away within like days of him being out he caught like two write-ups and then a few weeks later he oh. caught another one for you know one was for like having his fan in the window um of the cell and this is like you know it, it, there's no air conditioning um in in his building so you know it's like just for little things like that you know um and it, it's like it, at any moment those things can create, you know, send him into, you know, in crisis, into crisis mode because he's just like, how much is, you know, how much is too much and when is enough enough, right? Like, mm -hmm. is he just supposed to just continuously take these, you know, um, these instances every day, like, then it's like, you know, it's not just for people who don't get this, you don't just get to serve your time. Right. It's not no. like you go and people leave you the fuck alone. You like to do alone. And I'm not talking about neglect, you know, in terms of, you know, 
forgetting about people, but the kind of the fucking with people on every little thing. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like it, you could be getting a letter and someone will say something because, you know, someone drew something on the on the envelope. Oh, well, you know, like who's that from or whatever. Any little thing to fuck with you that they can find, they will. And they're trying to push yeah. the buttons. Um, and the, yeah, and so the big version of that is the gladiator fight. The little version exactly. is all that shit. Yeah. Exactly. And so many of these so many of these guys inside just they just want to ride it out, like program, do their time, or even just like they're never getting out. They got a life, just like, man, just let me take a class and read a book. Just leave me the fuck alone. Right. And yeah. that's why this like reorganization going on inside with not only the gladiator fights, but these mixing of yards. It's got so many people just stressed out and a stressed out yard pops off. Even right. if it doesn't mm-hmm. like any full thing happen. And it's not hard to like, you know, put, you know, get peace on a, on a prison yard. You just stop fucking with people. Number one, I mean, right. just stop beating yeah. the shit out of them. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and it's not like any of these demands, like these six demands are like, these are just the most basic shit. And like, number yeah. one is just like, treat us fairly. Just treat us as a human being. Like even just follow your own laws, follow right. your own laws. Yeah. Like we, we have, we've developed these sample demand letters for, uh, for the NDP, which is the non-designated programming. That's the, fancy name for the reintegration, like this mixing of yards. And the the amount of places they violate, like their own department operations manual, there's like a list of 18 different ways. They're just fucking with people. Right. And, yeah. you know, so by by what means are you like, you know, helping people get along in the real world by by just breaking them at every chance? Like, no, you, you are doing something altogether different. And I think a yeah, lot of the guys on the inside at this point too, I want to add a seventh demand, like on the outside. I mean, I'm, that they've also like articulated to me. They just want some of this articulated and recognized in the media, like you guys are doing here on the podcast, like in a substantive way, not in a voyeuristic, like, you know, ridiculous mm-hmm. entertainment way. Some of these TV stations do it. Right. Like, like all the ways we fear, like these videos when they get released, how they'll be used. You know, right. basically how they get flipped and use as propaganda, like, look at these animals. And it's yeah. like, man, you don't see the puppet master. You know, you, you're just mm-hmm. watching, like, the little Punch and Jody stage, and the operator is just making this scene, you know, up as they go. Right. It's just utterly infuriating. And I think just getting the story out there, in, in a way, would help a lot. It would help a lot, like, actually save lives. It would actually help the odds. It would help the negotiations inside between different factions. It would help people endure. And, you know... It, it would help the families e- even a lot. Just the just the notion of not being like just gaslit every single day. Like you and mm-hmm. your small crew, and like you're, you know, you know what's going on. Everybody that has someone inside knows what's going on. But like the mainstream narrative just chugs along, just steamrolling over you yet again. Not mm-hmm. even allow you to like, you know, cry out and be heard. Right. Yeah. Well, we are. Um... We're running up on on time on this. Um, this definitely won't be the last uh, conversation that we have about this. We want to um, see if we could have some family voices on here and spend some more time on this subject. I wanted mm-hmm. to close by giving you an opportunity to both tell people on the outside what they can do to help and also let people know where they can find you and, and get involved. Okay, so... If you're in California, or if you got people inside, or if you know people that do, 
or you want to help with the pressure actions that are often like a very public facing way you can make phone calls or show up outside prisons to like gain you know some visibility and levy some pressure on the system like shoot us an email at iwoc iwoc oakland at gmail or look us up on twitter you know but the gmail account just shoot us that i mean if you want to hook up nationally at large with incarcerated workers there's like uh, a whole bunch of different options on the website incarceratedworkers.org and you can join or just shoot us a message on contact um you know if you want to get involved i mean and also if you're media send us you know your like group media list you know send that to iwalkoakland at gmail help us like break the media silence we'll help you i mean and if you're a friendly source and you know what's up um especially if you're like impacted as they say in the nonprofit circles like if you got people inside or been inside and you're a writer um you know well we can help you make your pitch you know or just make your make the media so shoot that us you know plus at iwalkoakland at gmail you know Awesome. But uh, well, thank you maybe so we much. Could, yeah, go yeah ahead. Well, maybe we could sign off with, uh, you know, George Jackson's you know, quote, since it's his day. Yeah, please. Absolutely. Brooke, it, thank you so it, much. Yeah, thank you for, for being there, you know, for prisoners <clears throat> and for all you do. And please go ahead and read that quote. Yeah, it, it's the famous one, but it's, it's on point. Settle your quarrels, come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here. That people are already dying who could be saved. That generations more will live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love and revolution. George Jackson. I wanted to kind of um, have a quick debrief because I think that, uh, again, we ended with, you know, by talking about the trauma. And um, I think that we both were having a really tough time um, with this, uh, with this issue. Uh, and I think we should actually just talk about that a little bit before we yeah. just, you know, yeah sure i mean i can i can start if you want um you know like i mentioned on the episode like i've written lots of things about you know very grotesque and inhumane things that happen in prisons um and i have just never on so many levels i was just blown away by this um you know one thing that i mentioned was just the sheer number of people reaching out to me and like pleading with me to call them, to listen to them, you know, to call CDCR for them, uh, you know, and, and sort of like Brooke said, like the vast majority of them, women, um, wives and loved ones of people on the inside. Um, and then, you know, for me, I think the thing that really pushed me over the edge and made me have to sort of like step back from, from doing this work for a little while, uh, was you know like i in one of the articles i i spoke to a woman um who called me from a restaurant or or sort of like a you know like a mcdonald's or something like that she was on um she had a 15 minute lunch break and she had a young child 
and she called, uh, you know, we got on the phone as she was sort of taking her order. Uh, and she, while she was waiting for it, she started to talk to me and just sort of broke down crying throughout the entire interview, talking about how she needs to, she's trying to hold it together for her husband on the inside and be strong for him, which is something that I heard again and again from families on the outside, sort of this need to act strong and and not let it get to you when you're talking to, you know, your husband or your brother, Mm -hmm. your loved one, you know, your son on the inside. Um, And just bottling that up, you know, and, and like trying to, you know, she worked in, in customer service and she was talking about, you know, trying to deal with customers, you know, who I'm sure if it's at like any other service job in America, were not <laughs> very nice to her and, you know, not well paid and so on and so forth. And just how she couldn't keep it in and she's worried about losing her job and she's out there, you know, protesting in the rain with her, her very young child, uh, you know, just trying to get anyone to pay attention to her. Um, and it was really going back and transcribing that interview that I just literally broke down. I just, it was a lot, you know, (laughs) it was a real fucking lot. And I'm still, you know, when we were, I, I wrote that story in the beginning of this year, um, took a very long break for this and for other reasons. And then when we were prepping for this episode, you know, it just hit me square in the face, like right again. Um, this one has been very hard for me, you know? Um, I don't yeah. know if you have anything that you want to say or add, but that is sort of um, my, my reaction. When I was preparing for the RT interview, uh, what, two weeks ago now, um, I pretty much read, you know, everything that you had written about this, um, but I read that stuff, I think, after I'd read other pieces on it and you know um when i got to the pieces that you had written um man i had to take a break um they just the the one piece that you wrote where you talked to uh someone named junior and uh the other person named eddie and you used um pseudonyms there uh was oh my god um I just, I had to, I had to take a break. Like I had to stop everything that I was doing because uh, like, it was just really difficult in a context yeah. of everything else. And again, for, you know, listeners that actually follow me on, um, on social media or friends with me on Facebook, actually, um, they know that, you know, every, uh, every few days, at least two, three times a week, I post what I call the Vaughn files. Right. So where I, you know, document uh what my experience is with the facility where my sons are housed but also um or house where they're incarcerated um but uh so yeah so it's like it's just been a summer full of shit happening there and you know a lot of a lot of really deeply emotional stuff going on um around prison so when I started reading those things. Um, it was like really, really difficult. I had a really difficult time um, with uh, w- with this stuff, and not because um, you know 
haven't read really, hor- uh, you know, really horrible accounts of what people are experiencing on the inside, but the way people are pleading to be heard, um, I don't know, something was different about, about that. Um, yeah. And yeah, it just, it fucked me up. I'll just put it that way. It just, it, it fucked me up. It fucked me up real good. And I just, I needed to step back. Um, and I think that that's part of the process of doing this kind of work is that um, I'm not good at just sucking it up and kind of, you know, getting through it. I think that that's part of the problem um, is that a lot of, you know, folks are, have really internalized that message of, you know, just neoliberal capitalism and what have you, <laughs> just let's right. just fuck it up and just kind of persevere and, and that nonsense. And I think that that's so destructive and, um, and damaging and not what I want to be about. And uh, I also don't want to be a complete mess and not be able to function. Um, you know, uh, which I think, you know, can, can certainly happen, but just, you know, for us to have a conversation, um, about this stuff and be more deliberate about that in our own work, um, I think is an important thing that I'd like us to, you know, not just do for this episode, but really going forward, um, because we need to attend to, the fact that uh, we're all experiencing, you know, um, trauma uh, as a result of this. And, you know, just because we have a platform um, and are doing this work uh, and we have folks on the inside, it doesn't mean that we're any less susceptible to, you know, trauma than anyone else. Um, And, in a lot of ways, I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I could say a lot. I don't want to ramble, and I feel like I'm kind of rambling at this point. No. But I yeah. mean, it really makes me think about, you know, kind of what you were talking about, the, the, the bottling it up part, you know, is that the way things are designed is that you're really – it's not even just that you want to like bottle it up to be strong for yourself and all that you are like actively shamed into and and like basically told not to talk about it. Right. That these, you know, you're met with discomfort or people saying, Oh, well, why don't they just stop fighting or like just general again, like shame and, and a lack of understanding and a lack of compassion uh, and, and those are the those are the trolls, but I think that also that there are um that we're met with that from other folks as well, including folks in the quote unquote movement um, absolutely i, I yeah. don't know what I don't know what movement those people are in, but I don't consider them, you know, and it's like I've no say so over who's in the movement or what movement and you know all that stuff that's not my jam, but you know whenever anyone that's demanding my silence around this is not someone I can rock with um, in any, in any context. So, you know, not, sorry, we can't be friends. I don't have the emotional wherewithal to, you know, manage your discomfort and your whatever um, around 
uh, around this stuff. And my reality is that I do have two sons in prison. That's not changing today or tomorrow or anytime soon. Um, and it does impact, you know, um, the folks in my immediate family, um, you know, me and my daughter um, and my partner uh, and obviously my two sons. And outside of that small, very small circle, with the exception of, you know, a few friends, um, I really don't give a fuck what other people think. <laughs> I just, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to spend time and energy um, on, you know, apologizing or trying to accommodate other people's uh, feelings on, on this stuff that they need to get it together. Um, and that's it. And that's not, you know, if someone feels like, um, that applies to them, I mean, Hey, if the shoe fits, whatever, uh, it's not, this isn't a call out. It's not a call in. I don't care. Um, (laughs) just don't have the energy, uh, for, for all of that. There's only, I only have so much capacity, right. And the things that I'm willing to attend to, you know, it's like, I need to deal with my own wellness um, or unwellness as it, you know, sometimes is oftentimes is and has been over the last few years. Um, And I'm pretty sure that in, you know, in large part, I can attribute that to, you know, stress and trauma Um, and the folks that are there to actually help me. Um, I can count those people on one hand and I'm, I'm okay with that. I don't need a hundred people, um, you know, to be, uh, to be in my corner. Um, but yeah, it's like, right. I mean, the point that I was trying to make is just that, that, you know, as I am on board with you a hundred percent with all of that, but I think it, it bears recognizing that that is in our context, subversive and revolutionary in the right way is like, I feel like not everybody deals with this trauma that way, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think they should. And I think that it's important like we're doing now and like you do is not to accept other people's discomfort and they're urging for you to not talk about it. But I think it needs to be said that that is a subversive thing. And, part of being able, if you're not somebody who feels comfortable talking about sort of this level of trauma, I think recognizing the fact that it's not just in your head that you are actively discouraged from doing it can be empowering to to move you in the direction of actively dealing with your trauma in yeah. a collective capacity, you know? Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. And you, you will find, you will find your people. Um, you will find your people, uh, not everybody, you know, that's around you is going to be, you know, your people, uh, however you want to define that, especially, you know, when it comes to something like this. And I think that, you know, that was something, uh, you know, many, many, many years ago that, um, you know, maybe not that many years ago, but, uh, you know, that, that really weighed on me because you do want to maintain those kinds of connections and what have you. But then, you know, when the shit really hit the fan, it's like, okay, what really, what do I really need right now in this moment? And who is showing up, you know, for me? Um, And the folks that show up uh, and have continued to show up, 
we're good. Um, and you know, it's like, I think that for, for a lot of families, it's like, and, and we talked about this during the episode that the burden is on women. And I keep saying right. this, and I think this is probably going to be the title of a book at some point. It's always the women, right? right? The burden is always on the women. It's always the women showing up. It's always the women who are, you know, leading on a lot of these issues and, you know, talking about this stuff. It's the women taking care of the kids and all this stuff. And where is the, you know, the space for us to take care of ourselves and, to take care of each other. Right. right. So, um, yeah, because I don't want to make this out to be like, it's a thing where you're, you know, you are by yourself. Um, right. I think that a lot of this work can be, can be isolating. Um, and it, you can feel lonely, um, a lot of times, but, you know, when I think about it, I also have to resist that and reject that because I know one, I'm not alone. Um, and to that, you know, I'm part of a community. Um, however, I'm defining that community, not necessarily right. geographically, um, right. but that there are people that, you know, I can call and, you know, that will call and check on me and things like that. And it, that's an important part of this, because I think that, you know, the the trauma of it will will destroy you. Um, The trauma will destroy you and it creeps in, in all kinds of ways, whether, you know, um, something that I was talking about with someone else um, around, you know, having children, uh, small children, especially that you're not really able to discuss, you know, all of the details with or whatever. Um, but children sense this stuff and, you know, I'm not a psychologist or, you know, child expert, but um, I know enough uh, <laughs> to know that, you know, children sense when you're not okay and they will act out. Right. So if they're doing things and behaving in ways that you're like, well, wait a minute, when did this start? You know, it's like, we got to start connecting those dots and helping people, um, helping people deal with this stuff because it just, there's not an area of life that is not untouched by this. When you have someone on the inside, you are dealing with this no matter what you're doing during the day, there's no turning it off. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I think it's something, you know, if people are listening to this podcast and even for myself, you know, it's, um, I think the first step is recognizing it and then building the skill to be, you know, aware of when you're, when you're turning, when you're closing yourself off or trying to escape it instead of, you know, dealing it, dealing with it. And, um, I know I appreciate that this space is, is a huge place for me to learn and and work on this stuff these conversations have been enormous for me to be more self-aware about how I'm feeling and and sort of how I'm reacting to the things that I'm working on and that are happening in my life and not just you know not just do what basically we're told you know either overtly or you know through different influences in our society to just 
you know, bottle it up. We don't talk about that. That's not good for polite company or, you know, you don't want to make the person uncomfortable that you're talking to. Like it's a lot of unlearning and it's a lot of skills, skill building. Mm -hmm. And I, if I do have one, you know, sort of overarching hope for this show in general, is just to help people recognize that, you know, as a, as a important tool uh, in their toolbox for, for making change. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, yeah, if we're just going to reproduce the same structures that, you know, currently exist in our society that gave us this shit system that we currently have, um, then we're not doing, we're not doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> we're just, we're, we're, we've gone, you know, in, in a very different direction. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I know last year, um, around this time I, I was on vacation with my daughter and we, you know, I was, had a, a medical condition at the time that had been undiagnosed or an issue um, that had been undiagnosed, even though I'd been to the doctor about seven times. Um, that's a separate thing. But, you know, I remember having a major panic attack, like the second day that we were there and we were in this beautiful, you know, place and, you know, at a lovely resort with, you know, all the things um, that, you know, you would want. Uh, on a vacation. Um, and I just, I had a major fucking panic attack because I was in part because I was thinking about, you know, my son's being locked up and not them not being able to enjoy this and, you know, mm -hmm. feeling, having that sense of, you know, well, if they can't enjoy it, I can't enjoy it. And thinking about how fucked up that was, even though I know all of this stuff, um, right. you know, it doesn't make it any easier. Um, and, you know, it's like, I had to have a real, you know, conversation with myself um, about <sighs> how I was responding and what I was going to do to try to prevent that from happening again in the future, because that's also not healthy for, um, for us that are on the outside and are having to do this work, like, you know, giving yourself permission and learning to give myself, I'll say me learning for me to learn my, to give myself permission to enjoy things, um, and to have a good time. Um, has been a really difficult, uh, kind of thing because you do feel, um, you feel guilty. You feel like, you know, um, it's shitty that, you know, they can't enjoy these things, especially when you know, um, how they're being treated on the inside. And, you know, even though at the, whether we're talking about the more, um, the less violent kinds of things and I'm talking about physical violence and, right. and emotionally violent, uh, psychologically violent things that are happening or the more emotionally and psychologically violent things that, you know, we just talked about in this episode. I think that, yeah, all of that is, um, it's, it's, it's a process. Like it's yeah. a, it's a real process. Um, and not sure that, folks really talk about that in the context of the work quote unquote the work right, right. um yeah so or that feeling that you could you know have i done everything that i could do you know even if you've like worked yourself ragged you know i 
there's exactly. always more I could do to support, you know, my, the person that I'm trying to help on the inside. Yep. There's always, or, and, there's, and I think that eats away at you too, you know? Yep. There's always a feeling that it's just not enough that, yeah. you know, it's, uh, and again, I mean, I think that's, you know, um, capitalism, that's, you know, all of these things that that's how this system, you know, continues, um, and, and, functions is that it extracts um, not only, you know, financial resources, but our emotional and psychological resources uh, in ways that are impacting, having a real impact on people's health um, and primarily, you know, on women, because again, it's the women who, you know, overwhelmingly are the ones who show up and do um, have to pick up the slack uh, on, you know, on the outside. Um, And I, sometimes I don't know, you know, I I honestly don't know how we manage to do it. Um, We, you know, we've become very good at just kind of, you know, getting up, putting one foot in front of the other and doing whatever we have to do. But I think that, at least for me, trying to sort out a a way that's going to be less destructive and it doesn't deny um, the corrosiveness of, you know, the thinking or whatever. I don't know. I mean, does that make sense? No, it does. It like does. Total- no, 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 you're not. You're not. You're not. <laughs> No, really, you're not. I, I think you're making complete sense. Yeah. It's, it's very, I mean, you know, one of the reasons that, again, that I think that it's it feels maybe like you're rambling or that you're not coherent is that, and sort of what Brooke was touching on towards the end of the episode is that, like, we're still working on articulating yeah. this stuff, you know? Even, yeah. even if you live it every day and you feel it every day and it's very intimate and familiar to you, like, verbalizing it in a way that, communicates all of that is not easy and one of the reasons why it's not easy is because we don't we're not encouraged or given space to do it ever you know yeah Um, well we're we're expected to fade into you know oblivion and and never um and never discuss this and you know i knew i knew early on um after my sons went to prison that you know there would come a time and a day when I would have to talk about this publicly. Um, I didn't know what shape or form that was going to take. Um, I'm glad it's taken this, you know, this form um, in terms of the the podcast and, um, and what have you. But yeah, I mean, I just, I understood then that, you know, what I needed in the early days was to kind of, you know, just process and it just be and just kind of figure out what the hell I was doing with my life and what it, you know, what the new reality was going to be. Um, and it's not to just accept it, you know, but just to say, okay, hold on. I need, I need to step back and I don't have the time or energy or, you know, wherewithal to explain to other people what happened, why it happened, you know, what I'm going through and all of this other stuff, because that's energy, right? That's energy when at a time that I didn't have any energy for myself. And I can only imagine, you know, for uh, folks um, that are dealing with, um, 
that are having to or that are anticipating what's happening with their loved ones, you know, especially in uh, CDCR, um, like it's just gut wrenching. Like yeah. it, it's just gut wrenching, uh, and it, it's yeah. it's just hard. I mean, I I, do, I I don't think I said a whole lot in this episode, which isn't usually like me, but I I was hanging on pretty much every word that Brooke was saying. And I also had all of these examples that were popping up in my head um, about, you know, people that I know, not just my sons who have experienced, you know, different kinds of things that he was talking about, you know, in prison. And I was just like, oh my goodness. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I do think it is something about this particular story. I mean, I don't, I don't like calling it a story because that kind of yeah. makes it seem, but, but this, these sets of incidents that we're talking about, <clears throat> um, it just touches on so many different things that we've talked about on this podcast that we have yet to talk about that, you know, you experience in your uh, dealings with your sons. And it just kind of, I think that's part of the reason why it's so heavy you know, is that it is, it really is sort of a very visual example of all the different ways that the system operates to crush you and your family and, you know. Yep. And when you realize that, you know, the people who are doing this are other human beings, um, you know, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're like, Jesus, how can you possibly, right? Like, how can you possibly? I mean, like talking to this, you know, doing my due diligence and trying to just get comment from CDCR on on the story and having them say, oh, well, you know, we don't expect them to fight. And, oh, these aren't lockdowns. And it's just like, you know, you know, if this was like, your, you know, child, if this was your loved one, you know, I just I can never well, that part of I can never wrap my head around it. And right? I never will. I mean that's the thing. I mean it's like I don't want it I don't want it to be their child. And I, I think right. that you know e that you should have some not just some that you should not dehumanize other people, that you can have empathy even if the people that we're talking about are not people related to you. Right. That you should, you know, and as a human being, you probably have the capacity to do those things. You're choosing yeah. not to and you're ignoring that and you're deeply invested in preserving, you know, this system that yeah. is so destructive and, you know, and you just don't care. And you're behaving in ways that people are like, you know, like you're gaslighting people as well. Like right. the gaslighting is, you know, classic abuser, you know, tactic. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that, you know, again, you have to deal with that on top of all of the other things that you're dealing with. You're right. dealing with someone who's telling you, well, that's not really what's going on. What's going on is that, you know, it's a modified program or yeah, you know, exactly. all these, they're using coded language um, that we know what that means, but most people won't know how to decipher that. Right. And I think that being, um, being in the media uh, is a really 
you know, especially doing the kind of work that we do um, makes it really difficult because we really are trying to attend to the story uh, and to these issues in ways that don't reinforce, you know, that bullshit um, and center, you know, not only the family's voices, but prisoners' voices in these problems and people who are organizing with them, um, et cetera, you know, and it's like, that's, that's emotional labor. That really is emotional labor. And it's, um, it's not something that folks in the media tend to talk about. Like I, I, sometimes I wonder, I read, you know, books and whatever. And, you know, I'm like, wow, that's nice. And, you know, I'm struggling to put together a paragraph some days. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, in part because every single word is full of a thousand chapters. And, you know, it's like, I, I just, I have to step away and, and walk away. And it's not an excuse. It's just like, that's just real. That's just what I'm going through. And yeah. uh yeah, so I don't know. Um I, I'm hoping that, you know, by debriefing and I don't know what parts of this we'll decide that we, you know, keep in the um in the episode or we use this, you know, um as outtakes or whatever. Um but you know, I hope that some of this sharing some of this and being more um open about this stuff resonates with folks that it needs to resonate with um and and i hope you know like i like we said i i don't think this is going to be the last episode we do on this even in the in the short term i think we're going to focus on this for a little while and i think these debriefs are an important part of this you know of this collection of episodes in particular if not the podcast writ large um yeah 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 yeah, definitely. We'll uh, bring on, you know, the families um, and uh, the folks that you've talked with and, you know, the the folks that have reached out to me um, that have agreed to, you know, come on on the podcast and, and talk about what's going on. Um, yeah. And, you know, just we have to um, we have to attend to our needs here um and provide you know not just provide but develop um ways to support each other um in this work and um and to make sure that we're okay um or better than okay so you know yeah whatever that means uh once we disconnect (laughs) you know it's like I would go to acupuncture tonight, but it looks like it's starting to rain like hell outside. So I guess I'm not going to acupuncture or anything like that. I'm gonna snuggle up with those cats on the couch. I'm gonna feed my cats. No, they're too hot, man. I'm I'm a <laughs> so I'm like, oh no. It's like I have I have one big fur ball that really loves he's like a fifteen pound fur ball. Oh, and boy. it's like, man, he loves to be like right next to me and I just <laughs> start sweating and I'm like, oh God. But um yeah so yeah well i'm glad we did this um thank you again take care in writing about george jackson angela davis said the following for me george's death has meant the loss of a comrade and revolutionary leader 
but also the loss of an irretrievable love. This love is so agonizingly personal as to be indescribable. I can only say that in continuing to love him, I will try my best to express that love in a way he would have wanted by reaffirming my determination to fight for the cause George died defending. With his example before me, my tears and grief rage at the system responsible for his murder. He wrote his epitaph when he said, hurl me into the next existence. The descent into hell won't turn me. I'll crawl back to dog his trail forever. They won't defeat my revenge. Never, never. I'm part of a righteous people who anger slowly but rage undammed. We'll gather at his door in such a number that the rumbling of our feet will make the earth tremble. We'd like to thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. To learn more about what prisoners are experiencing at CDCR, we encourage you to check out the show notes for links to the articles that Brian has written. We also included links to the IWOC website and to the agreement to end hostilities, which was mentioned during the episode. Thanks again for listening. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. And if you'd like to volunteer to help us transcribe our podcast, please contact us at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. <music>